Please listen carefully. We live in a world full of coffee drinkers. I myself am one of them. I average about two to three cups per day. That's not so bad, right? Us coffee drinkers are also full of opinions. We might prefer a local brew or a fancy international import, or both, or neither. Starbucks sucks. Tastes like battery acid. Love Blue Mountain coffee. It's the best. That was one such opinion from Jamaica, where coffee growing has a long history, but coffee drinking culture and specialty coffee shops are somewhat new. We'll be exploring that and more in this episode of Are You Listening, the Global Voices podcast where we introduce you to people, places, and events from around the world that aren't getting the media coverage they deserve. I'm Lauren, news editor at Global Voices. I live in Bilbao, Spain. And I'm Sahar, managing editor at Global Voices. I live right outside of San Francisco. The podcast, Are You Listening?, takes a look at some of the stories that have recently come out of the Global Voices newsroom. And in this episode, we'll take you to Jamaica, Indonesia, Syria, Macedonia, and Ethiopia for stories of remembering, revival, and resurgence. What's old is new. In many parts of the world, it seems that specialty coffee and the coffee shops that brew it are becoming more and more common. You may also think that would be the case for Jamaica, a country that's been growing the stuff for hundreds of years and is home to the iconic Blue Mountain coffee brand. Well, not quite. In Jamaica, there isn't as much coffee culture as you might expect. Jamaicans seem to be like me. They have more of a tea habit. And there's also a preference towards imported instant coffee, which I'm guilty of sometimes too. But things might be changing in Jamaica. Starbucks is reportedly considering an entry there. The international coffee chain has been expanding rapidly in the Latin American and Caribbean region over the past few years. So what effect could Starbucks have on Jamaicans' taste for coffee? Well, some Jamaicans welcome the variety that the company might bring. As one Twitter user said, Blue Mountain Coffee is one brand of coffee done one way. Starbucks product offerings bring vast possibilities, period. That's the voice of our contributor, Emma Lewis, who originally wrote about this subject on the Global Voices website. She's helping us narrate this story. But other Jamaicans weren't a fan of Starbucks over local options. One Twitter user by the name of Guru Zen observed, Perhaps the point that is being lost is the real need to support Jamaican coffee. And another user, somewhat less elegantly quipped. Starbucks sucks. Tastes like battery acid. Love Blue Mountain Coffee. It's the best. Blue Mountain Coffee in Jamaica is often considered a luxury product. Carolyn Wright is from the United States, but is now based in Jamaica. On her personal blog, she explained what she thought was a major factor for why Jamaicans don't drink their best coffee. Here at $2.50 plus a cup, it's expensive and not an everyday treat for most people. At work, unlike all other countries we've lived, there's no decent coffee available, despite the fact that coffee is one of Jamaica's most well-known exports. Therein lies the problem, as its famous coffee is exported for a very high price. 
Very little Blue Mountain coffee is available locally, and what remains is just crazy expensive for most people. So even though coffee itself has had a long history in Jamaica, high prices and other challenges to the industry have made it too expensive for many locals to drink local. Despite this, however, there is a growing cafe phenomenon, at least in Jamaica's capital city, Kingston. A number of local coffee shops already sell varieties like Blue Mountain. There's also a promising social enterprise called Deaf Can Coffee that trains deaf youth to make cafe staples such as cap macchiatos and even nitro-cold brew coffee. But they also hope to empower their employees by giving them skills that could inspire them to run their own businesses someday. Forty-seven years ago, the world's population was only half of what it is now. That iconic British rock and roll band known as the Beatles broke up after playing together for 10 years. And chess enthusiasts and programmers came together for the first all-computer chess championship. You know, a chess competition among computer programs, and only among computer programs. It was also the last time a Saudi king visited Indonesia, that is, until March 2017 when King Salman bin Abdulaziz Al Saud touched down in the world's most populous Muslim-majority nation as part of his month-long Asian tour. The visit was welcomed by many in Indonesia and produced a few entertaining moments, such as when Indonesian President Joko Widodo video-blogged his lunch with the king. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Saat ini saya sedang bersantap Currently, I am having lunch with the Honorable King Salman bin Abdulaziz Al Saud, the president says into his handheld camera. The king has just started eating. The president then pans over to show the king hunched over, eating his meal. Later on, the president asks the slightly befuddled looking king to say a few words for his vlog. But the king's visit was also met with dismay from some Indonesian labor groups. Activists organized a peaceful protest in front of the Saudi embassy during the king's visit to demand better human rights protection for Indonesian workers in Saudi Arabia. Indonesia stopped sending workers to Saudi in 2011 because of the abuses suffered by migrants at the hands of their employers. But despite the ban, Indonesians continue to enter the kingdom to work illegally as domestic helpers, making them even more vulnerable to various forms of abuse. What's worse, in Saudi Arabia, domestic workers are still considered by some abusive employees as property. According to the Indonesian Ministry of Foreign Affairs, there are more than 630,000 Indonesians working in the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia. But that number would be higher with the inclusion of undocumented workers and victims of illegal trafficking. After the meetings, the Indonesian government claimed that King Salman assured the president that he will treat the Indonesian workers as his own people. The king's visit also touched off conversations about rising religious extremism in Indonesia. The country is generally known for its interreligious tolerance. Although Muslim hardliners have become more active in recent years, they oppose the current government, which they accuse of being weak in defending Islam. They have also issued calls to establish an Islamic caliphate in the region. Saudi Arabia, on the other hand, promotes an ultra-conservative strain of Islam known as Wahhabism. It started to gain momentum in the 1980s in Indonesia with the introduction of Saudi-funded language and cultural schools. 
Today, moderate Muslims in Indonesia are uniting to fight against the spread of extreme Wahhabi interpretations of the religion. With Saudi Arabia pushing Wahhabism, one Indonesian Twitter user quipped that perhaps Indonesia could return the favor. Saudi learns pluralism from Indonesia, he wrote. We learn Wahhabism from Saudi. We're even. Many thanks to our contributor, Carolina, who originally reported this story on the Global Voices website. Lebes? That's how we say how are you in Tunisian dialect. I'm Afev, the MENA Advox editor for Global Voices. Want to read more about the topics we mentioned in this podcast? You'll find them and more on our website, globalvoices.org, on Twitter at Global Voices and on Facebook.com slash Global Voices Online. What is it like to be jailed by ISIS and live to tell the tale? Global Voices recently spoke with two Syrian activists, Isa Ali El-Kudr and Karum Al-Musri, who recounted their experiences in an ISIS prison, and by their account, it was brutal. Late last February, the ISIS-controlled city of Al-Bab in Syria was taken by Turkish-backed Syrian rebels. Al-Bab lies just northeast of the city of Aleppo and south of the Turkish border. The capture was part of Turkey's Operation Euphrates Shield, recapturing Al-Bab from ISIS control since November 2013. Kudr and Al-Musri, both from Aleppo, were held captive by ISIS and Al-Bab. Kudr is a 23-year-old citizen journalist. He was arrested in mid-2014 and imprisoned for six months. Al-Musri, also 23, is a photographer and video journalist. He was arrested in November 2013 while on his way to document a massacre that had just occurred. He was kept captive for six months. Kudr managed to escape, while Al-Musri was eventually released. More than two years after his escape, Khudr went back to visit the prison in Al-Bab, and together with a friend, went through what remains of the prison. They filmed the visit, and Khudr released the recording online last February. Today, I'm going to do a tour to show people who were impressed by the Islamic State, by its slogans, by that they claimed that they ruled under the law of God, and that everyone was fighting because they ruled under the law of God. We will see what rule was applied in this building. In this cell, I remained the whole month of June. Me, Basil al-Humsi, who got killed, and Yusuf, who left. We slept together in this solitary room, and they used to bring someone with us, and all four of us would sleep here. We used to crouch here to fit each other, and we would sleep squeezed. I'm going to pray here, gratitude prayer, not an obligatory one. As for al-Masri, who spent a month and a half in solitary confinement, everyone in the prison were rebels, activists, and journalists. They were only fed every three days, some flatbread, or a few olives, or maybe an egg. My cell was about two meters of height and a meter in width, he recalled. I did not see light for 45 days. 
As a result of spending so much time in complete darkness, I developed problems with my eyes and had to start wearing glasses. After he was released, Al-Musri found out that his family had been killed. Not by ISIS, but by government forces. They had dropped a barrel bomb over their building, killing everyone inside, including both his parents. Many thanks to Joey Ayoub, our editor for the Middle East and North Africa region here at Global Voices, as well as our contributor Elias Abu Jaud for originally reporting this story for the Global Voices website. listening to is Vanya Lazarova, a celebrated Macedonian folk singer. She died on March 12th at the age of 86. Lazarova was born in 1930 and enjoyed a distinguished decades-long career at a time long before Facebook or YouTube. She worked in the opera of the Macedonian National Theatre. She performed internationally, including playing the Royal Albert Hall in London for Queen Elizabeth II and Prime Minister Winston Churchill. She was the first Macedonian singer to make records for labels such as Polygram and Philips. But by the time social media rolled around, she was surviving off a meager monthly pension of less than $170. She wasn't receiving any benefits from the copyrights for music, and the owners of a private nursing home had taken her in and were covering her expenses. Despite the prominence she once had, she had fallen into obscurity. That is, until a journalist discovered her plight and Macedonian Facebook users rallied around her in response, demanding that the government help her. And the government listened. In May 2014, journalist Ognen Janeski produced a video report on Lazarova that aired on TV24, an independent TV channel in Macedonia. At first, it didn't draw much attention, but then he published it online. Macedonians were outraged. Overnight, more than 8,000 people joined a Facebook page asking the government to bestow Lazarova with the status of national artist so that she could receive the pension that goes along with it. That number would reach nearly 20,000 people when all was said and done. The shamed authorities reacted quickly, sending the Minister of Culture to make an urgent visit at the nursing home. During the visit, the minister also held a press conference saying that Lazarova's request for a national artist pension, which had been previously denied, would be reconsidered. The government then gave Lazarova the October 11th award, given on the October 11th national holiday that commemorates the uprising against fascism in 1941. The award was necessary for Lazarova to meet the conditions of the national artist status and therefore receive the pension. All this was significant for Lazarova, of course, but this series of events also represented an important victory for Macedonian citizens against a government that doesn't take kindly to criticism. It also marked the first time that Facebook has been used in an important way to petition the government. Unfortunately, what might be a happy ending comes with an asterisk. 
The journalist who first publicized Lazarova's troubles, Agunin Janeski, has said that his family have become targets for revenge by the ruling party for his involvement with Lazarova, as well as his other work. And one of the celebrities who chaired Lazarova's cause, musician Zlatko Oregansky, has reportedly faced furious forms of intimidation for that and other criticism he has directed at the government. Most recently, a group of unknown people came to his door with a video camera and hurled abuse at him, calling him a traitor. Pro-government web portals then propagated the video as proof of anger of the people. Many thanks to our Central and Eastern European editor, Philip Stajanowski, for originally reporting this story on the Global Voices website. March 2nd of each year is an important national holiday for Ethiopians. It commemorates the victory at the Battle of Odwa. The battle was fought in 1896 in the war between Ethiopia and Italy, and it brought a decisive end to the Italian conquest for Ethiopia. It took place during an era when Africa was being carved up by European colonialists. During this period, Western powers conquered almost all of Africa, except Ethiopia and Liberia, making the Battle of Adwa a historical anomaly. For many, the win is a powerful symbol of anti-colonial resistance. In the book, The Battle of Adwa, African Victory in the Age of Empire, historian Raymond Jonas even suggests that it was an event that determined the color of Africa, a black Africa. But over a century later, its impact is still hotly contested. Some claim that Menelik II, Emperor of Ethiopia, who is generally credited with the victory at Adwa, was a pretty problematic figure. He reportedly considered himself as, in his own words, not a Negro, but a Caucasian. As one Facebook user argued, Adwa is anything but a black victory over a white colonizer. Adwa was a moment of self-hating denial of blackness. Nothing typifies this more than the emphatic Menelikan disavowal of his uh, blackness when he was invited to be an honorary president of the Global Association for the Improvement of the Life of the Negro by saying, I'm not a Negro, I'm a Caucasian. Menelik stipulated that he is an honorary white man. The person you just heard is our contributor, Endalk, who originally reported this story on the Global Voices website. He's lending us his voice for this segment. The narrative surrounding this battle is also said to often downplay the contributions of the Ethiopian peasantry, as well as those of women. That includes Menelik's wife, Empress Taitu Betul, who was actually an astute politician herself and commanded a faction at Adwa. But others continue to maintain that the victory was a symbol of multi-ethnic cooperation. From the perspective of modern world history, Adwa represented the struggle for the national independence waged by a coalition of diverse ethnic groups. The participation of 100,000 troops from dozens of ethnic groups from all parts of the country is the mysterious magnetism that hold Ethiopia together to win the Italian colonial army at the Battle of Adwa. Central to many of the debates around the Battle of Adwa is the question of Ethiopian identity. One of the frequent claims in online debates is the idea that the victory at Adwa didn't deliver freedom and independence equally to all ethnic groups in Ethiopia. Ethiopian nationalists tend to view the battle as a powerful symbol of black anti-colonial resistance, not only for Ethiopia, but also for all of Africa. 
However, ethno-nationalist political rivals, like the Romo ethnic group, often respond that these narratives are presented entirely from the perspective of Ethiopia's ruling class and erase the history of regional conflict in the country. Not to mention the current reality that certain ethnic groups continue to face oppression and discrimination at the hands of Ethiopia's ruling elite. All this can then lead to debates about the nature of Ethiopian identity and whether it should be based on civic nationalism or ethnic ties. It may be over a hundred years since the victory of Adva, but for many Ethiopians, there's still more battles to be fought. And that's a wrap of our latest episode, What's Old is New. This is Sahar. And Lauren. Curious about how we find these stories? Well, we're not like other news organizations. Global Voices is an international network of passionate people who know their way around the internet and keep tabs on the conversations happening in their regions. Our 1,400 mostly volunteer writers, editors, and translators cover stories from 167 countries and then translate them into more than 30 languages. Together, we've been building bridges of understanding, as we like to call them, through our digital reporting since 2005. This episode was made possible by all the inspiring work of our Global Voices authors, translators, and editors. So many thanks to all of you out there. A special thank you as well to Kat Betwigas, who helped us put the episode together. Don't forget, if you like what you heard, please share this episode with your friends on Facebook and Twitter. In this episode, we featured Creative Commons licensed music from the Free Music Archive, including Please Listen Carefully by Jazzer, Good Riddance by R. Sonar, Flute Fleet by Paddington Bear, Vintage Frames by Kai Engel, Backward by David Seste, and Modulation of the Spirit by Little Glassman. And of course, thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in to Are You Listening? We'll have a new episode for you soon. Until then, 